Friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This morning we're reading verses 23 into chapter 2, verse 4. Um, as you're turning there, I do want to thank our pastoral interns, um, Eddie, Junie, and Ben, for the past two weeks. Uh, they presided the services as well as preached uh, from the Psalms. And so I'm very thankful for them and how that allowed me uh, some time to uh, engage in, in some study. Uh, today we're back in 2 Corinthians in a series that we're calling Grace for the Week. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, we're returning to a section where Apostle Paul is responding against accusations made uh, leveled against him, uh, questioning his apostolic uh, qualifications. Uh, now, I do want to say this before we get into our passage. Uh, the portions of scripture like what we're going to read this morning can sometimes feel a little bit irrelevant to our lives. And that's because what's happening in Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is Paul is addressing a very specific concern uh, to specific people regarding a specific situation. And so it's easy sometimes to read this, go, this has nothing to do with me. This is something that happened 2,000 years ago and dismiss it. But the reality is that all of God's word is profitable for us. And so if we would just ask the spirit to speak through his word, to give us both light and life, uh, we trust that even reading 2 Corinthians this morning would be good for our souls. And so I invite you this morning, if you are able to stand with me, we stand because it's an act of worship. It shows that we revere God's word and we have respect for God's word as we read it and receive it. So hear it now, 2 Corinthians 1, beginning with verse 23. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. The grass withers and the flower falls. The word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Would you pray with me, dear friends, at this time? Lord, we want to come to your word humbly. We want to come asking that your spirit would speak to us through your word, that you would speak to us words that we need to hear each one of us. And we trust that as your spirit is present, working in the preaching, working in our hearts, even working to give us listening ears that hear not just with um, our physical ears, but with our hearts, that you would uh, do a work of drawing us to yourself. And that as a result of having heard and met and fellowshiped with the living God, we would walk out of this place different. So bless our time now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to begin with a question that you need to be honest in answering. And the question is this, for those of you who identify as believers, for those of you who walk according 
to the Christian faith. Do you enjoy being a Christian? Does having the gospel, believing the gospel, living a life of faith in Jesus Christ bring about joy in your life? Or do you just sort of accept it? Maybe Christianity is something you agree with. It's something you assent to, and therefore you don't think much of it. It's just part of your life, the normal rhythms and routines of the way that you grew up. You know, last week I wasn't here um, at Cornerstone. I was away preaching at a missions conference in Utah. And the thing about Utah you may know is that Salt Lake City is where the headquarters of the Church of Latter-day Saints is. Um, there's uh, an alarming statistic. I guess alarming is maybe a bit too strong of a word. But uh, in, the, in Salt Lake City and Utah in general, uh, 60% of the population are members of the LDS Church are members of the church. That doesn't mean they affiliate with it or they identify themselves, but they're actually members of this religion. And so going there and getting a chance to preach and talk with some of the uh, church members who are ex-Mormons, it became really clear that for many Mormons uh, in Utah, their religion is really just a part of their culture because it's such a heavily Mormon area. They embrace the faith, uh, not because it's any real source of spiritual vibrancy in their life, not because it actually produces any kind of joy for them, but it's just their environment. It's just the way they grew up. It's just the way that the culture and society works. I don't know if you know this, but one of the things about you know being in the LDS church is you can't drink coffee. And so my friend was complaining that Starbucks didn't come into the neighborhood until really recently because so much of the population doesn't drink coffee. And so why do we need a Starbucks? And that just got me thinking about how similar that is to the church and how that's true even in our own Christian religion. And if some of you uh, believe simply because it's convenient, I mean, you were born in the church, raised in the church, Christianity is all you know, you don't question it, you believe it. Now, if that's you, that's good. That's okay to believe in that way as long as you believe. And others of you, maybe you're like me. You know, there were times in college where I tried not to believe. I tried to rebel, but something in my heart just knew Christianity to be true. I just couldn't deny Jesus no matter how many excuses I made. Others of you have just grown up in the church your whole life that you don't know what life without faith even looks like. And so if you've gotten this far believing, you might as well finish the second half of your life believing. Well, the temptation, of course, then, is that we just settle for Christianity. We settle for the faith we have. And we actually settle with having saving faith, but we don't aspire to have a joyful faith. You see, it's very different. Having saving faith just means that I believe in Jesus. I know that one day when I stand before him on that final day of judgment, I'll be clothed in his righteousness. I know that it's by faith alone, through Christ alone, by grace alone that I'm saved. And yet there's such a big part of your life where the joy of knowing Christ and being known by Christ is missing. You know, it's my prayer as your pastor that each one of you would be able to truly say, being a Christian, knowing Jesus Christ and being known by him is the greatest gift I've ever received. That as our call to worship, as we recited this morning, that you would be able to say, I have found the treasure of Jesus hidden in a field, and I'm willing to give up all that I have in order to own that field. 
You see, friends, this is the focus of our sermon today. Paul, in our passage, talks about how his labor and ministry among the Corinthians was for their joy. And caring so much about their joy in the faith, it led to him enduring some real deep heartache. He had to make some really tough decisions. He had to put himself in the crossfire of accusations and criticisms leveled at him. But it was okay. Because for him, the pursuit of joy in the Christian life was worth it. I think that is and needs to be true for us. The main point of the sermon this morning, it's very simple and short for you to remember and reflect on is this. Strive and work for joy in Christ. Simple. Strive and work for joy in Christ. Now, as we get started looking at our text, we need to understand the background to it. If you remember from a few weeks ago, Paul had made a promise to the Corinthians saying that I'll come and I'll visit you twice. He writes this in chapter 1, verse 16. He writes, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, that's one time, and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. That's the second time. Now, Paul keeps one half of his agreement. He shows up the first time, but what ends up happening is there's a confrontation with the believers there, the church there. There's a conflict, and it's so painful that Paul decides, I can't come again. So he actually writes in chapter 2, verse 1, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Now, it wasn't an easy decision for Paul. He knew that he said he would come twice. He knew that these people would level accusations against them. Wait a minute, you said you would come twice. Why would you only come once? But Paul decides that it would actually be better for them if he were to only come once. He says this in chapter 1, verse 23. He says, but I call God to witness against me. I'm not lying about this. It's true what I'm saying. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Here's why. When Paul came the first time, he saw a lot of problems in the church. And because he saw the problems in the church, he knew that if he came again, he'd have to bring the rod of discipline. He knew he would have to come with confrontation and correction, but he also knew it wouldn't be pleasant. And he didn't want their reunion to be filled with confrontation and correction and rebuke and this rod of discipline. He wanted their reunion to be joyful and celebratory. He wanted to be a happy, glad occasion. So he knew the only way for me to visit you and have this joyful experience together in Christ is not if I come, because if I come, I'll come with a rod, but it's to write you a letter. And Paul talks about the letter. He writes in verse three and four, he says, he makes allusion to it. And I wrote as I did, for I wrote to you. Paul wrote them what is called the severe letter. And in this letter, Paul is trying to get them to repent and turn to Christ and receive forgiveness so that when he comes, it's a joyful occasion. And that really shows a lot about Paul's heart, the kind of heart that he had. And I don't know about you, uh, were you disciplined at all growing up? Disciplined by your parents, let's say. No, I know that I'd never received a handwritten letter from my parents warning me that discipline would come. But imagine that. Imagine if the heart of your parent was so loving and and concerned for you that before they came with the rod of discipline, they wrote to you a letter, dear beloved child of mine, 
It is with a sincere heart and deep love for you, earnestly desiring to win you back to the way of righteousness that I write you this letter. Would you receive it in urgency and humility to change? How many of us receive those letters? That kind of warning. The only warning I got was when I heard my dad's heavy footsteps on the steps. And then you knew the rod was coming. Paul lovingly cares for the Corinthians, so writes them a letter so that they might repent and know joy. And we know this is Paul's heart. He says in uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4 that his motivation was love. I wrote to you for what purpose? To let you know the abundant love that I have for you. His motive was love, but what was he aiming for? What was his goal? Verse 24 tells us, not that we lorded over you, but we work for your we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. All that Paul did, all that he endured, he did it to work with them for their joy. That's a goal worthy of the Christian life. That's the goal. That's the end. Are you working for it? Are you striving after it? The ministry that we're engaged in here at the church, the labors we're committed to, the prayers we're lifting up, the sermons that are being prepared, life shared together, burdens born together. The goal of the church is to work along, come alongside of you so that you might have more of, experience in greater degrees and depths, the joy of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of our ministry. And so if that's the end, are you working and striving after joy in the Christian life? Or are you waiting around, hoping that it will fall out of heaven and right onto your head? You see, dear Christian, how many of you expect that it's enough to come to church once a week and sit in a service for one hour a week and expect that the presider, the praise leader, and the preacher does such a marvelous work that I and Edmund and all those who are leading are able to Spur in your heart the kind of joy in Christ that Paul's talking about. Now, intellectually, we would never say that that's what we'd agree with, but so often our Christian lives are lived in that kind of way, isn't it? We come to church and, and we say, all right, I'm ready, preacher. What do you got for me? You're responsible for my joy. The reality is we can put food on the plate, but the fork is in your hand. You need to take and eat. You know, today we have our monthly fellowship lunch. And it's normal. You go downstairs, you're going to see some parents with their young kids. They're going to be feeding their kids. Why? Because they can't feed themselves. And then you're going to see some brothers and sisters um, putting some on their plate and putting some food on other people's plates. And you're going to see the real selfless ones in making plates and bringing it to the pastor. but you know what you won't see and what you shouldn't see? You shouldn't go downstairs and see grown adult men and women spoon-feeding each other food. Why? Something's not right about that picture. You see, we are called to work with, for, and Apostle Paul comes and he says, we are doing a labor with you that you would strive after joy. It's not enough to just expect others to bring that joy into your life. Now, I'm going to get a little analytical here for a second, but consider this with me. Look at verse 24 again, and notice it begins with these words, 
not that we lorded over you or over your faith. And then he ends by saying, for you stand firm in your faith. So the subject matter is faith. And so you would expect Paul to say somewhere in the middle, something like this, but we work with you for your faith, right? We don't lord it over your faith. We work with you for your faith, for you to stand firm in your faith. But that's not what Paul says. Interestingly, Paul makes a little switcheroo here because what he actually says is, but we work with you for your joy. Meaning that for Paul, although he cares about our faith, he cares that you grow in faith, that's not the ultimate end. The ultimate end is not that you grow in faith, but that through your growth in faith, you would grow in joy. Faith produces joy. Paul makes this clear in Philippians chapter 1, verse 25. He just talked about how he'd rather die and go and spend time with Jesus, but that he's here laboring among the people as he's in jail. And he writes, convinced of this, I know that I will remain, continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He's saying the more you progress in the faith, the more you grow in faith, the greater joy you should be experiencing in your life. And this is why mature, growing Christian disciples should be the most joyful, happy, glad people in the world. It's not to say that you can't mourn or weep or grieve or lament. The Bible calls us to do those things, but it means that as Christians, we don't sulk and mope and brood. And here's why this is important. Have you ever either confessed to another person or thought to yourself, I'm not growing in my faith as much as I'd like to? Or you've asked that prayer request, hey, can you pray for me? I want, I want to grow more. And oftentimes we hear that and we all oh, pray for you and oh, yeah, I'll text you to make sure you read the Bible and I'll keep you accountable. We have all these things. But if you ever stop to ask the question, what is the measure? What is the metric to determine whether you're growing in faith or not? Like, how are you, what are you comparing yourself against in order to determine and get to the point like, oh, I'm not growing in faith? I really think that needs to be challenged. I think the answer Paul is giving and that it's your growth and joy, but so many of us have false metrics. I know that for many of us, we think what it means to grow in your faith, what it means to grow in spiritual maturity is increased knowledge. Is that how you think? The more I'm able to articulate theology, the more Bible passages I know, that's how I know I've matured. And so you believe the pursuit of spiritual growth should lead to more learning and more studying. You want sermons that you can leave this place and have a page full of notes. And when you only have one sentence, like strive and work for joy in Christ, you go, oh, that sermon, what was that? I didn't learn anything. And others of you, maybe you view maturity in Christ as increasing obedience. And so your thought is, oh, spiritual growth looks like doing more for God. And when I was a younger Christian, it was hard to do a lot of things for God. It was hard to, you know, come in every Sunday. It was hard to tithe. Oh, but as I've grown, I've been able to obey more. And that's how you view your maturity in Christ, through your obedience. But when did Paul say that we're working for your obedience? He said, we're working for your joy. And so others of you think that growing spirituality means increased pietism. 
pietism, of course, means that experiential relationship you have with God. It means a commitment to spiritual devotions. I think maybe the majority of us in this room view our spiritual maturity in terms of how pietistic we are. Because we grew up in church, some of us, in youth groups where we're told, what do you need to do? You need to read your Bible and you need to pray. And so your mark and benchmark of spiritual progress of maturity in the faith is how committed am I to reading my Bible regularly? How faithfully do I pray? And so you equate robust spiritual practices with robust spiritual faith. But does Paul say that he's working for us to do our disciplines better? The list goes on and on. Maybe you think, oh, growing in Christ and spiritually uh, growing means that I'm more committed to godliness and holiness and the pursuit of righteousness. And others say, well, no, 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 it's, it's increasing boldness in the truth to stand up for the truth against all the wrong that is happening in the culture. We need to stand for the truth. And still others say, no, 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 no. Growing uh, spiritual maturity means being winsome and compassionate and listening more than speaking and, and giving good witness to Christ. And of course, all of these things are good things, but Paul comes along and he says, the work that I'm engaged in with you is that through your growth in faith, you would grow to have more joy in Christ. So Paul goes on to say, the reason that I was willing to endure the affliction and the anguish and all the tears, the reason I was willing to put up with this is because I love you so much that I want you to have joy. Now, if you're like me, that sounds a little too unspiritual, right? Because joy sounds selfish. It sounds fleshly. Like, are you sure it's not more holiness? Are you sure growing spirituality is not more obedience? But the scriptures testify to something else. That to grow spiritually is to grow in joy because one, we know joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. He bears that fruit in you. But let me just share with you a couple passages. In Acts 13, verse 52, we read this. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting that Luke puts them two together because he says when the Holy Spirit came into our lives, that means joy also came into their lives. Romans 14, verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. If you have the kingdom, if you've inherited the kingdom, what does that lead to? Joy that comes from the Spirit. Romans 15, verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The God of hope gives you joy so that the spirit who helps you abound in hope then help, therefore helps you abound in the God of hope who gives you joy. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word of much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit that you received the word not for increased knowledge but for increased joy. And the point I'm making is simple. Striving for, working for joy is one of the most spiritual things a Christian can do. It's not worldly, it's not earthly, it's not fleshly, it's not selfish, it's spirit-given, spirit-produced. We're a PCA church, we're Presbyterian, we're Reformed, we're confessional. Do you know what that first question of our beloved Shorter Catechism is? It asks, what is the chief end of man? And it answers, 
Man's chief end is to glorify God and to obey him forever, to learn more theology about him forever, to pursue holiness forever. No, it says to enjoy him forever. That's the purpose for which you were made, to enjoy the Lord, to, great, to get great joy in Christ. Now, how do you get that? You don't get it by sheer willpower or sheer effort. You get it by beholding and coming to the true joy giver, Christ Jesus himself. You know, Paul was laboring among the Corinthians. He was in anguish and under affliction and weeping tears because he loved them and wanted their joy. But Paul's ministry among the Corinthians was really just an imitation of Christ's ministry to us. For we know that Christ, with his incredible love for sinners, wept many tears over Jerusalem as he looked upon the lost. That Jesus himself experienced anguish in his heart. He was forsaken by God on the cross. You know, Jesus endured much bodily affliction as he was crucified on the cross that we should have borne. The question is, why would Christ subject himself to this? It's because of his great love for us, he desired to give us his joy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, exhorts Christians to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, the gospel is that good news. This is Jesus took the cross you deserved so that he might receive his joy. And in his love that he might share that joy with us. Because your Savior says in John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, not to keep joy for himself, but to give it to you that you may have it in full. And so then to strive and work for joy really means to strive and seek after to fix your eyes and abide in Christ. You know, it's a mistake to believe the Christian life is about laying aside your joy so that you might live for Jesus. It's not about laying aside your joy so that you might live for Jesus. The gospel is about Jesus laying aside his life so that you might live in his joy. And you reflect that as you seek after and work for joy in Christ. Let me end in this way. Meditate on these three questions. Here's what I'd like you to do this week. We'll send this out in an email, but meditate on these three questions this week. The first is this, where am I really seeking my joy? Where am I really seeking? Like, like really be honest the, to the places you're looking, to the people you're looking to give you joy. Now, if that seems a little too abstract, maybe go about the question in this way. What are the things that really uh, disappoint you when they don't deliver the way that you wish they delivered? When and, and, and how and why are the times that you feel most disappointed in not receiving what you thought? 
Like you bought that thing off Amazon because you thought it would make you glad. You put on that outfit because you thought it would make you happy. You visited that place because you thought it'd bring you joy. You worked so hard for that job to get that biggest salary because you think, you thought it would make all things better. What are you seeking your joy in? Pay close attention to those things, the places and the people that your heart turns to to find joy. You might be surprised at what you find. Here's the second question. How is my joy being squashed or stolen? If that first question is about where are you going to find joy outside of Christ, the second question is what are the things that are coming into your life that are taking away your joy? What are the habits or the routines or the attitudes or actions you do that prevent you from experiencing joy, that rob your joy, that suck those out of you? Maybe for some of you, it's the presence and the entrance of anxiety into your life. When right before bed, you check your work email and the joy is zapped. And for others of you, it's envy in comparison when you're constantly on social media looking to answer the question, well, what are other people up to and is it fun? Maybe joy is being zapped out of you because you're exhausted from overcommitment because you're a people pleaser and you can't say no to people's demands and their requests. Maybe joy is being stolen from you when you start complaining and grumbling, it begins in the heart and you begin verbalizing it about all the ways in which life is unfair. You know, we all have these habits that we aren't aware of but are actually stealing and squashing our joy. Keep an eye on those things, the when, the where, and the how of your joy in Christ being challenged and replaced difference. And here's the third thing. Third question, what am I investing in to help my soul rejoice in Christ? If Apostle Paul says that he needed to work with the believers in Corinth for their joy, it should be of no surprise that you need to work for your joy. Because if you're not investing in your joy in Christ, then you will soon experience the shallowness of your faith. I think for starters, you begin with this realization. The joy of the Lord won't just happen. You, you can't expect good health without a good diet. You can't expect strength without exercise. You can't expect a nice cushiony retirement without saving. How can you expect joy in Christ without spiritual investment? How do you do that? Will you seek what Christ has made available to you, namely himself? And that joy comes to us in the most ordinary ways. Our gospel is not a Gnostic gospel. It's not about discovering some secret hidden knowledge. It comes to us in the most ordinary ways. Here are a few. Number one, come to Sunday worship regularly. It would do wonders to your spiritual life and joy in Christ if you were just to come regularly. Number two, sing the songs vigorously. Now, the chorus of that song earlier was a little high, but other than that, sing the songs vigorously. It'll do wonders to your joy in Christ when you sing and your heart catches up with what your voice is doing. Listen to the word 
diligently. It's hot, it's stuffy, it's a dreary morning. But listen to the word diligently. Come and receive the sacraments expectantly. Don't run, but in your heart, run. Come and feast. Meet in community faithfully. You made a commitment to show up to CG, so show up to CG. Confess your sins humbly. Stop making defense and excuse, but confess humbly. Read the Bible prayerfully. Don't read a chapter and put it down, but read a verse and stop and pray. Spend time in reflection silently. And keep sacred time daily. Dear friends, spiritually invest so that you may reap joy in Christ. Now, let me close now just with this comment. If you are a Christian in this room, I praise God that you have saving faith. But I also pray that you would seek and desire a joyful faith. That it's not enough to simply say, oh, well, I'll get to heaven. But to say, while I'm on earth and I'm journeying there, I want to be rejoicing now. For those of you who are still searching and thinking and questioning about this Christianity thing, might you know that the gospel message is a message of joy. Not of robbing you of joy, but the one who was robbed of all of his glory by coming down to earth and becoming poor and naked and stripped so that he might give you his joy from now into eternity. And so let us strive and work for joy in Jesus Christ. Pray with me.